Well, 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 well. Look who's back in the house. <laughs> <laughs> Look who's back in the house. I've been itching to get near a mic. The other boys, not here. You see, and they were questioning us. Not here. <laughs> Who do you think they are? Just because I missed two episodes, you know, let some other people shine. There's only Jello that's gone, what, eight for eight or seven for seven before. Exactly. And to be honest, some of them reviews... He might not be getting on the next one. Yes, yeah, so. <laughs> I, I can't lie. I was some of those one-star reviews. That's my bad. Uh, well, I mean, and that was the best £20 I've ever spent. So, hold <laughs> <laughs> tight, man. Hold tight. I appreciate that. Good to be back. The first... Black guys in a box with invited guests. Invited guests. Woo. It's a big deal, guys. That's how we do. It's a, it's a huge deal. And I'd like to say thank you to uh, Rich and Alana. Uh, like I say, our first invited guest, first scheduled guest. Change it up, give us a, a new perspective as we sort of complete the two-part retrospective of 2019, which is our first year of the podcast. Um, I, I started with a joke, but I'd like to just... Shout out the other boys, like especially Angela, eight episodes out of eight, holding it down. Kofi, I don't know where he is at the minute. Is he? He's somewhere in the Southern Hemisphere doing handstands mm, in roads. The boys and that. living it up and doing that <laughs> stupid tongue out face, man. That is so played out. <laughs> tongue out, Kia Kaha. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, and, uh, and Nate as well. Awesome first episode um, of the of the double header. So hold out. Keep hold, it up, guys. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll all be back together next month as well. So, Oh, so we've been replaced already? Yeah. I know. Wow. I thought this was a regular thing. Sure. I don't know. I just, uh, sure. that is like patriarchy. the pilot season. It's patriarchy. <laughs> it is. No, it is. It's load I management. I can't even get into that can so soon. It? I can't even get into it. It, but. it is load management, guys. You know, so who's night- Kawhi? Who is Kawhi? <laughs> Who are we doing? <laughs> yeah, on. you brought that up. You brought that up. One night Who on. is Kawhi in one this situation? Off. One night on, one night off. We're playing for places in the playoffs. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Who okay. is Kawhi? We'll get back to that later. <laughs> so, with just a little quick round table, uh, we have in the house, uh, we'll get for the guest first, to my right. Hey, what's up? I am Richard, uh, also known as Tunde, from Tales from the Plantation <laughs> podcast. Uh, you can find me at TFTP underscore Twitter, underscore Tunde, T-U-N-D-E, on Twitter and Instagrams. Uh, the the podcast is Plantation Tales on Twitter and Tales from the Plantation on Instagram. My guy. Just so you know, that's not an endorsement of any of those things. <laughs> we are we are uh, sponsoring the episode, so uh, you are welcome. You may find that, and if it's good, great. If it's not, please don't complain. <laughs> <laughs> our second guest and our first female guest, many. Thank you. Hopefully, first yeah, first of many. Also, could just be me going forward, just putting that out there, see how it goes. Um, But my name's Alana, a longtime friend of Dom's, first time on a podcast as a guest, so excited. I don't have any of those handles to share with you. I'm just endorsing myself (laughs) and my personality and uh, the female agenda, so Mm -hmm, mm. yeah. There's going to be a lot of that. I was, uh, I was actually hoping she was going to go with the long-time listener, first-time caller. She's a, <laughs> a radio good. classic. But uh, there you go. And? And you got me, DHT. <laughs> I'm not going to do all the handles and everything, because y'all know I am by now. Y'all know where he is. <laughs> y'all know where to find him. Fantastic. Um, let's get, first of all, like I said, let's get into it. Um, shout out Outset Studio. But, but. Holding us down for the first time. 
Man like Michael sorted the boys out. Man like Michael. Thank you. <laughs> you got to get it together. This is why I'm here to educate the people. There we go. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be fun. <laughs> 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 so let's get into it. Um, 2020. How's everyone feeling about 2020? <sighs> yeah, let's all take a deep breath there. It sounds it's, old, doesn't it? It, it, it feels... It feels too future. Mm. It does, exactly. Like, yeah. that we've had all these 2020 strategies, like the movies we watched growing up, we're talking about 2020, like yeah. we'd be on hoverboards. That's we've what it is. The self-lacing shoes, Back mm. to the Future lied to us. They're broken up people's foot, you know. <laughs> they actually developed them. And they were breaking people's feet because the laces were a bit too oh, much. Oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah. You can get a pair for 10, I think for 10,000. I've seen them, they look all right. Hmm. Huh. £10,000 to get orthopedic surgery. <laughs> <laughs> this is it. Or you can just buy a pair of the co-eyes. Uh, <laughs> but, yeah. but yeah, 2020, I mean, it's a funny one. It's, yeah. I was, I can't remember who, who I was listening to at the time, but someone had said it's, it's, it's interesting that in the, in the 20th century, all the art and all the literature was citing the 21st century about, because mm. we could, we could envision this, this really exciting future, whereas now you don't get our, invoking the future because we can't it's beyond our imagination things move so quickly and things change so quickly that it's it's difficult to imagine yeah. what's what's coming next and what's beyond that so i think that's sort of plays into this feeling where we're here now we're like Ugh, this this is it <laughs> yeah i have to say that going so normally every year i'm really i feel like i can reflect on the previous year and i have a clear idea of the energy that carried that year along and then I usually have a pretty clear idea of the energy that I want to bring into the new year and this is the first time that I really even now I haven't set any goals really I just feel like the dust has not mm. settled from just a lot of things that happened last year I think a little bit of that as well though is like the last so even just looking at the UK and politics, right? The last four years has been so unpredictable. It's been wild. Mm. Like you, you, you had this idea of this is how things yeah. work. This is mm -hmm. how things will go. So we can start to predict where it goes. Yeah. yeah. Now nothing's predictable. Uh -huh. Yeah. Like Trump got in, got into office in 2016. Brexit happened in 2016. Mm -hmm. United can't win three games in a <laughs> row. I, I can't believe no, anything anymore. <laughs> like, I've got nothing left to believe in. Um, uh, you say nothing's <laughs> predictable though, but is it, I, in a way it's predictable because I now predict the worst outcome yeah. that's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And it, it, what's a worst outcome? I say the outcome which is going to cause the most upheaval. Yeah. Um, and I feel like that's the position that people in society are taking. Yeah. yeah. So um, does that make you guys feel more or less hopeful 2010 to 2020 Dom? I would say, right, so it's difficult. It's difficult to just give a, a straight answer because for me, you got to look at where you were in 2010. And for me, like I think a couple of you guys around the table as well, it was my first full year at university. And with that, there was a lot of upheaval in my own life. So you're living away from home for the first time. And I was up in Newcastle, so it was a completely different environment for me. The only thing that was consistent between the two was I'd come from a white place and I moved to an even whiter place. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the familiarity of, of the situation. But the one thing that I think I really cared about back then, if I'm honest, was 
popularity, mm. doing well in your exams, obviously. Girls, I'll yeah. be honest, that was one of the main drivers of university as well. But you lived in such a bubble. My life was Jesmond, my life was Newcastle. So I didn't really take in too much around that. So whether that was race, I mean, politics was, was quite a thing because I mean, everyone knows it's the, the university. First, yeah, the it's first election. The first election, there. exactly, yeah. We can vote now. And there was quite a lot of upheaval as well because we were moving from a Labour stronghold for what, I don't know, was it like 13 years or yeah, something? Yeah. Um, and then for the first time, it looked like that bubble was bursting as well. So I think one of the things that really started to politicise us back in those days was the university fees. And with the Liberal Democrats saying that they were going <laughs> to kind of completely take away the fees. And then we all know what happened after that. So back in 2010, I kind of had my blinkers on a little bit. Yeah. It wasn't a case of I was that woke, for want of a better word. It was just my life exists in these four walls of Newcastle and anything outside of that. Didn't really matter too much because I'd be going out that night. That's what's important. I need to wear a nice Hollister t-shirt to keep myself looking fresh for the ladies because that's what it was about back in those days. <laughs> I know, I know. Hollister. We wore Hollister. <laughs> oh, I we wore did Hollister. too, we did too. But It was uh... disgraceful. But I mean, I think the most formative years of my life up until now have been over the last decade. So there's been a lot that's happened that's made me question things a bit more. And coming to 2020, I think it's probably around three or four years ago that I started to wake up and smell the coffee a little bit because you're well clear of the university life. I effectively moved from one bubble to another because the likes of the elections that you were just talking about, each and every one of those came as a surprise to me when it possibly shouldn't have done. Because I mean, I am in a much more privileged position than a lot of people are in terms of understanding different perspectives in the country. Like coming from a rural place like Yorkshire, I should have been able to understand those sentiments. But what I did, which I thought was a good thing at the time, was I started to clean up my social media. So mm. in the lead up to Brexit. You were taking out the Exactly, I was taking out the racists. If I saw something that was a little bit off, I'd tell them, suck your mum. <laughs> but that, that was it. So when I got rid of all these people, my feed, everything was just yeah. very progressive. Yeah. The echo people that chamber. I ran with, exactly, it was a real echo chamber. So that when we got those election results, when I started seeing more and more in the media, that was where I was like, oh God, I need to get myself out of this bubble. And I think you, Dan, I know Kofi does this as well. You keep a list on Twitter, don't you? Of I, I, do, I don't keep a list, but I've got, uh, I keep a mental list. Okay. But I, I, it's, Kofi keeps lists and so, <laughs> yeah, he has a list of like accounts, which are the antithesis of what he is politically, yeah. socially, mm. ethically. And his idea is that this list is, he needs to be able to see what's going on. Mm. So he can see what his ops is plotting. His ops <laughs> is making plots. Yeah. And he needs to be able to just dip in. And he says he dips and goes, and I was like, that's the most poisonous way <laughs> to keep tabs on what's going on. And yeah, yeah I mean, I understand he's, he's trying to sort of pierce that echo chamber idea. I just keep them in the feed. Yeah. And uh, you know, you can scroll past and stuff. It's, I have got a couple of, uh, names like that are just uh, they're on the list so I don't see them like Hopkins that kind of thing oh, Hopkins yeah, on there Morgan's like, on there but, yeah I, I actually keep Morgan I keep him on really yeah. mm. he I think he is he is 95% trash yeah 5% media personality yeah and it's that 5% that makes me wonder how much of the rest that 95 oh, I, I will I'll will tell you now a long time ago these guys realised there's a lot of money in yeah. saying these things, yeah. Yeah. No, exactly. it's basically it. And the problem is when you live that, you have to fully commit to it. 
Yeah. So they're just living as this. That's why you get you get a lot of these people. They move to. They might move newspapers. They might they might change jobs. And it, and it appears like there's been this sort of deathbed conversion. But no, they were always the same person. They just realised that they they just this is where the make. money is. Yeah, yeah. it's so, the same thing in the states. I mean, a huge percentage of the people on Fox News actually believe the crap that they're peddling. But a lot of them. I mean, Fox is the only news outlet that was providing that sort of far right perspective and they so they just were the only ones tapping into that demographic and made so much money off of it and a lot mm. of those personalities can't go back to yeah absolutely being neutral in any way yeah like what's um, the name of the dude who took over bill o'reilly's spot the Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson. Oh, yeah. like if you look at the clips of what he used to be like when he first joined yeah compared to where he is now. He recognizes that if you're gonna take Bill O'Reilly's spot, you've got to come with Bill O'Reilly's fire. Yeah. yeah. And it's it's all of them. Like whether it's UK is here, Dominique Samuel, um her American counterpart, the the black lady whose name has slipped my head now. I, I can remember it, but I'm not gonna say <laughs> it. You're gonna say it. Um Piers, Katie Hopkins, all of these. Lot. Well, this week we've had a great example with a, a, a jobbing actor and foreign, one time oh, musician yes. named Florence. It rhymes with Florence Locks. <laughs> and he, he went on Question Time and he like there was this he had this outburst and what happened? He, he was so booked. Or he was so this person is he comes from a, a family, a quite famous acting family, very sort of well off. He failed as a singer. He failed as an actor. And he got onto, they put him on TV for once, and he said something controversial. Look what happened! He was booked wall to wall. He yeah. was on TV singing a song that I presume he wrote <laughs> yeah. on daytime TV Everybody in front of eat, right? in front of millions of people. And that's what I'm saying. It's there's a lot of money in uh, holding these pretty abhorrent views that you don't, you don't believe in them, but the fact is it, it inflames and an audience of people who might believe it. Yeah, yeah, and that's that is the worry. But um, so I've just sort of jumped in on you there. No, no, no. That that it's 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 all legit and, and builds on what I was saying as well because I think if I was to have a word of the last decade, it would be bubble because I am now consciously trying to move outside of that or at least to acknowledge things that happen outside that bubble because I feel it's it's fun. It makes my life easier to just exist within this. But then that's that's not it's real not world. Real. It's not the real world. It's yeah. not life. So I'm consciously trying to do that, and whether that's through reading, like I say, being engaged with more different personalities, more different forms of media than I would typically. But in terms of whether I'm hopeful for 2020, that's a, that's a very, very tough one because you look at your personal situation, and I'm coming into this decade, first and foremost, I'm nowhere near in as much debt as I was when I was in 2010. <laughs> that's one thing. Hallelujah. Exactly. God for financial good freedom. Good for you. Come on. Okay, I didn't realize we were bragging, but good for you. Okay. It's not even a humble brag either, no. <laughs> but that's, that's one thing. I mean, like the financial worries that I was in when I was in 2010. I mean, I was living off, what is it, like 3,000 pounds a year or something. Mm -hmm. and looking back, I, I don't even know how that's possible. Um, just, just life is much better for me personally now because I think you start to learn who you are as a person when you hit 24, 25, 26, don't you? So I'm much more content within that. Um, and I think as well, which I touched on in pieces that I've written in other pod episodes, I'm fully understanding and coming to grips with and rejoicing in my blackness, which yeah. if I look yeah. back at 2010, I was by no means hiding it. Nothing was being hidden. But at the same time, I looked around and there was a certain... 
a certain image of what I thought I should be in order to do well in my sports, do well in education, do well with the fairer sex and that kind of thing. Shopping at Hollister. You, you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> I look back at pictures now and it's having it. friends that let me go a dead afro, man. And that can't, that can't be the life It's the only place dark enough. I've been wanted to notice that you were black in Newcastle, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Turn some lights on. I want to buy this shirt. It was overwhelming. <laughs> Absolutely overwhelming, man. But man, I'm, I'm happy within myself, which is the first thing. And I think kind of the most important thing about self-love and everything. But then when I look around me, Lord, I couldn't be any more pessimistic, yeah. which is tough for someone that is a very optimistic person by nature. Um, but now I'm starting to see that pessimism slip into my everyday because of, I think, getting into the, the last decade as well. If I say that my word of the last decade was bubble, I think at the same time, the most important thing about the last decade was a smartphone. Mm. So with that, I mean, we had, if we look back in the 60s, 70s, 80s, etc., we had MLK, we had different assassinations of people which which made people rise up mm. um, and become uplifted and start to fight for their rights. We had Rodney King back in the 90s. And now with the smartphone, we have something like that every other week. It, it felt like within the, within the last decade, in particular the last half of the decade. And I think whilst it was more often than not further away from home than it could have been, I mean, obviously we had things like Grenfell, which were horrific, which really did start to make me realize that I am disposable to a lot of the people in this country, a lot of the authorities in the country. Mm. The likes of Philando Castile, that was one that really, really set with me, where he was doing absolutely nothing yeah. in his car, was shot by a police officer. There were a few different situations in the States which made me realize I might be comfortable, I might have a pretty easy life over here, but to the next man that doesn't know me in the street, I am completely irrelevant. I can be disposed of at the, at the click of your fingers. And that was something that was a real wake up call to me because we might have completely separate lives, but I learned that my life really isn't that important the last decade. And that was something that was quite hard to swallow, but also it was something that I needed because that made me start to try and understand my own value. And on top of that, learn how I could try and shift dialogues a little bit within my own circle, within my own bubble. And I think that was the biggest takeaway that I got away from the last, the last decade, that I am important within my circle. I do have a voice, but I'm also not that important outside of that. And I need to, one of the most things, that, one of the things that I want to do more within this podcast, whether it's writing, just speaking to people, is let those feelings and those thoughts be, be heard a bit more. And without that, I mean, I'm in a position where a lot of my circle are white and having those conversations, I think, is the best way to actually go by changing dialogues, changing narratives. And that is the biggest takeaway that I got from the last decade. I, I didn't want to jump in. I can see it itching. I was, <laughs> really, I was really itching because I think the phrasing you use, that idea of your life not being important, um, for me, that was, the, that was the point where I wanted to jump in because there will be some people who don't value you as much. Mm -hmm. However, it's not that it's, it's not because you're not important. It's because you, you project and portray different values to that. Yeah. There is still a value in that. Like recognizing for every little thing that we do, every word that we say, everything that we do in this room, in the writings, there is someone growing up that never had that. Mm -hmm. Like we were saying, <laughs> I am turning into Angelo. <laughs> we were saying on our podcast um, <laughs> that 
the last year, the, the last decade, social media's growth has been probably one of the most positive and negative, negative influences. Yeah. Because yes, we're able to see more of the violence. Yes, we're suddenly um, seeing the, the, the deaths at a, what seems to be a quicker rate or a higher rate. But equally, we suddenly have access to all of this media that is controlled by us and starts to show us in the way that we want it to be shown. Like an ownership of that, Like, yeah. uh, all, the, all the stars that are coming out of Vine, out of YouTube, uh, the, the TV shows that are being produced on there and giving us that ability to see us ourselves in media in a positive light, mm-hmm. those are important and mm-hmm. those are there because... Um, because the tools are now available. Yeah. The growing up, like you grew up in Yorkshire, you grew up in America, I'm I'm out there in Southeast London. And the role models we had, like for me in London, I remember on my first day of secondary school, my mum telling me no, it was my dad telling me that uh listen, you can't be talking about hardest init boys. You can't be using inits. <laughs> You have to talk like Tony Blair. (laughs) That was the only positive role model they could see to use. And that has now changed. And you recognize, I think I've recognized as I've gotten older, that the more positive representation I can provide, every day that I am living the life I'm living, which, thank God, is as as blessed as it is. Like, I'm in a good place. Every day that I'm out there being a positive role model, is important to someone, whether they're in my direct circle or just outside it. Yeah. Whatever they can see that gives them that alternate option, whereby to cancel out John Barnes's nonsense from yesterday, <laughs> criminality isn't the only way for black people to be successful, right? Yeah. Like, you are important. Each one of us in this room is important for yeah. that reason. I think yeah. that's another name that we need to start using less on this podcast as well, by the way. JB. JB. Hmm since I am offering a female perspective, not the female perspective, um, that representation has been key, I think, for me in this last decade. And even though, you know, when we were asked to reflect on on what the last decade has meant to us, the contrast between representation in 2010 as a, as a, not only a person of color, but as a woman of color, compared to what it is now, And even though some of that portrayal in the media can be problematic, um, I can't even speak to the the difference that it makes. And and seeing women of color being celebrated a little bit more as beautiful and not just, I mean, we still are hypersexualized. That Mm -hmm. hasn't gone away. But to see men both of color, men not of color, seemingly more open to respecting women of color, their beauty, their voices, and what they represent. I mean, that that's why, in that respect, I feel much more hopeful going forward. Yeah. Um, I feel, as a woman of color, more supported than I ever did in 2010. Um, I feel more represented, and not just in terms of beauty, but even in, in the political landscape. Uh, there's a, uh, a politician, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. Yeah. Yes. I love that woman and what she's doing and the fact that she, I even think she looks a little bit like me, not to, you know, for our <laughs> listeners who don't know what I look like, but I look a little bit like AOC. Um, she, 
it's seeing her being so successful and being so confident and winning and succeeding. I mean, I can't even describe what it what it does to a woman like me to encourage me and inspire me and to to inspire hope in me for the future. Mm-hmm. And I also think I have a younger sister. She's 10 years younger, so she's 18. And seeing, so she's in Gen Z, and her generation is so much more woke or accepting or tolerant than my generation was. Yeah. I mean, I would, I would say words around my sister when I was younger, and she would say, we don't say that word anymore. We don't call people that. We don't refer to people like that. And it's just amazing that all, they're all like that. It just, yeah. it's incredible. So I think, yes, I'm terrified of climate change, and there is a lot of hate that, when you said you were in a bubble, that really resonated with me because I definitely was in that bubble. We have pretty parallel lives, it sounds like, Dom. Um, but even in spite of living in that bubble and then seeing that there is the complete opposite of that bubble, yeah. it seems like the extreme right, conservative, the extreme hate that you're witnessing is also inspiring extreme love and acceptance and for those voices to be stronger too mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm pretty torn i can't say i'm completely optimistic or completely pessimistic i'm really in the middle here but therein lies the issue we're saying extreme one versus extreme yes. other and i think that is one of the biggest issues that we're facing now because we do True. have yep. it, it seems like we're, we're losing the ability to have a discussion and actually yeah. empathize nuance. yeah there needs to be a bit of nuance there typically if you have a different <clears throat> if you have a different opinion to mine then I don't like you. You mm. are a threat to me. You're a threat to my a threat to my future, mm. and that is one of the most poisonous things that I look around and see around 2020. Yeah, yeah. and that's on both sides. Yeah, no both sides in here. No both sides in here. <laughs> no both sides in here but you are right. You are right. And uh, it's like for me, it's a funny one because um, oh, thanks, Helena, for the the view of all women, as she said at the beginning. There. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, for me, it's a funny one because I. Tom's known me a long time. Like I've always been a very cynical person. Like, and it's you get away with it as the Yorkshireman to a bit because everyone's like, oh, it's the old curmudgeonly sort of yeah. Yorkshire. But, but I real about six years ago, I read a, a book about uh, it's, I think it's called a Complaint Free World, and the whole point of it is that you're put on this purple wristband and you weren't allowed to complain, and you have to get twenty one days without complaining consecutively without any kind of complaint any kind of dissension and if you complained once you took you took the wristband off and put it on the other wrist and you started again from zero and i did it for about six, seven or eight months and it made me realize like how much i complained and the little things and slowly your mindset changes because i'd have days where i just not people are like, why are you being so quiet and it's because i was I knew I was getting annoyed at stuff so i was having to retrain myself to think about stuff so i was a negative person and now because of that, I'm, I'm people are like, no, you know, you're still negative. But it's, I'm hugely, <laughs> I, to me, I can, I feel a lot more positive about things. I don't, I don't worry myself about things. So I saw, I'm almost set myself out of the mental space where I know things are bad, but I'm going to look for the good and yeah. the stuff that I can look at. So like you're saying, you see the, the role models for people, like it's uh, people always draw on, on artists and uh, actors, but even like Black Panther, when that came mm. off, like yes. they, they said, uh, an all sort of black-led superhero film wouldn't be a success. It was a huge success, and yeah. you saw you saw the fun that they were having on set, and all different generation generations of black actors. Like after that, you saw Danny Garay, Lupita Nyong'o, uh, Chadwick Boseman. That all go into like huge success, and then mm-hmm. the other films like Fences with 
Denzel. In fact, that, that year was Fences. I think Moonlight. 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 And thingy, all for the Oscar. All went for the Oscar and uh, Hidden Figures. Yeah. And like I took strength from that and seeing yeah. the role models people saw from that and seeing people have uh, a chance to see like this positive rep- positive representation of black people. And I remember again, you're talking about different people. Need, young people need to see. Uh, opportunities for themselves to make a success of themselves. Um, I remember I'm I'm 31, so I'm I am an old man now. And uh, you don't look it, though. Yeah, yeah. So you got no, I don't. To be fair, um, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna just take that as a as a compliment. Skin is you. glowing, fam. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like. I don't remember when he's, he's not black. He's a white guy. But True Geordie is a, is a good exempt, uh, representation of. These YouTubers came from nowhere. People were able to sort of make a career for themselves and learn so many different aspects. And I was talking to a kid at work who's the child of someone I work with, and he just he had like seven YouTube videos on his channel. And I was he was like, "Oh, maybe start following me." So I started following, him, watching videos. Like, mate, you can make a success of this. There are people I watch regularly who are worse than you are. And he was yeah. like ten, and I, I sent him away with like that mad podcast masterclass thing. I was like, yeah. mate, just go and work at it. Yeah. And I'm like that is now a viable. Out, outlook for him, yeah. viable future for him. So, uh, poets a good example, and these guys that go far as the three shots guys, who are, mm. those guys are living well now off the back of it. But I think that's what I choose to focus on now as an individual, like the sort of macro stuff, like with politics. It's it's so big. It, yeah. It, yeah. I, I just feel I I drown and I feel helpless. Like I was a journalist for two years and. In the end, I, as soon as I like left that job, I pretty much unfollowed everyone except for the football journalists. I unfollowed all the other journalists. I can't have this stuff just coming into my life anymore mm-hmm. because I can't really do anything about it. Like the US stuff with Trump again, I disengaged because mm. I'm afraid that's sort of America's <laughs> problem to deal well, with now. And it's also it's the it's like the modus operandi. It's the way that the powers that be want you to feel yeah. to yeah. feel overwhelmed, so you you can't focus on. What's where that? to put your energy to make the world a better place. Yeah. You know, I read headlines just to stay yeah. informed and just to have an understanding of what's going on. Um, but I really try to focus on what is important to me yeah. and what can I do within my own community to, to fix that. It's kind of grassroots. Like yes. That's, that's the, if, if everyone can make their circle stronger... That's I think that's where society's gonna go so much better. Like well your worth is the net worth of your circle. That's the way that I look at it. Like so that. as long as we're doing well, as long as all my friends are doing well, that, that gives me a little bit of solace. Mm. Yep. But I think what you've all touched on there around within your community, looking at people start to harness that to go on to success. That is one of the things I'm most hopeful for. Going forward with twenty twenty and beyond. You touched on Poet, um, three shots with tequila. Those kind of guys are harnessing their circle. Mm. their community people like them to make a success of themselves like back in the day you'd have to cross over and be very mainstream unless it was like an underground like whether it was music whether it was tv whether it was youtube it was very underground and it stayed there Mm. and now we're seeing we're seeing the likes of poet on sky sports for instance you're seeing these people crossing over but by retaining their personality they're not changing they're being able to be themselves because we know now everyone has access to the internet everyone has access to that kind of media you know that there's millions of people out there 
that you're going to strike a chord with. Yeah. Mm. So I feel we are much more empowered nowadays to be ourselves and that's a viable career option, yeah. to be yourself because you know there's so many people out there that can associate with you being like that. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like I will say, I, I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not an idiot. Like uh, things are sort of pretty bad um, <laughs> out there. But, and it's like, you're like, a pessimist, really? I feel like outlooks. <laughs> <laughs> outlooks. The, the problem is that like outlooks have regressed almost. Where previously you'd have like an agreement that everyone has a right to a basic levels humanity as, as as a baseline. You are allowed to be alive. I'm just gonna say that. That's what's the way we used to live. Whereas now, I have to call my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas now it's like people. So certain people resent even having to to have a basic level of respect for someone that they don't know. Like, that, there's a resentment at that, and there's an anger at that. Like, well, well should I do that? <laughs> why not? And it's no longer yeah. good enough for me to ask that, to say why not. It's like, no, you've got to justify your existence. Yeah. You've got to justify you, who you are. You've got to justify, like, what you are as a trans person. You're a man or a trans. Like, so on that front, yeah, I think I, stuff like that does worry me. But um, Do you I, know what I say to that? Why, why do you give a fuck? Like, I mean, the way, that I, the way that I approach it, and I know this isn't for everyone, but if you come to me and you say, my name's Alana, my name's Ali, but I want you to call me Nigel. Cool, I'll call you Nigel. Because it doesn't affect me in any way. You just do you. I don't understand why people wrap themselves up in other people's existence too much, especially when you don't know that person. So, the, from, from the way I see it, this is just a personal opinion here, I think, a lot of it is coming from the fear of not being able to define things. Our world is built on definitions and the, the safety net that we've built around ourselves is being able to say, this is this, this is this, and as a result, I know I am this. Mm -hmm. The moment you start to take that away from some people, their world ceases to be well-defined yeah mm. and as a result that will shake people there's going to be people who are just shaken because they need to they need to have that that assurance that what they know and what they see is true the resistance yeah. to change yeah right and and i think looking back at it a lot of it has come from the fact that like you say back in the 50s 60s 70s 80s at the height of wartime the majority of news was to try to combat that. Mm -hmm. We didn't want people always looking at death. We didn't want people always looking at the fact that these people who were going to fight for the noble cause were were potentially dying t dying in vain. Mm -hmm. So we had all this stuff about the world of tomorrow. We had all of this glorious outlook of what could be. Let's go to space. Yeah, to counteract it, <laughs> right? But now, if... We don't we don't have that same balance, right? In peacetime, the people are just living their lives normally, yeah. right? So to constantly bombard them with good news will start to feel like it's mundane. But I actually think that is a negative that we don't share enough of the good stuff. That's no, happening. definitely. Right. I remember when the I said Russell Brand. The, the, he's the, the blonde-haired comedian. Russell Howard. Oh, Russell, Russell Howard. Howard. Yeah, he's good I news. Mean, no, it's all the Russell, isn't it? Russell <laughs> Kane, Russell Howard, Russell Brand. <laughs> But uh, yeah, he got a TV show called Russell Howard's Good News. And I remember the first thing I thought when I saw that, I was like, ugh, who do you think he is? <laughs> that's that's the Yorkshire in you again, man. I'm telling you about me. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like, what, yeah. like who, who gets? Is it news if it's good? Yeah. Look, look back to 2000. We got so excited for the new millennium that we opened up an entire arena mm. 
and it was just Ooh. a big dome filled with yellow spikes. Didn't you perform there once, mate? Yeah, man, play drums in there still. Uh, I played the Go Go Bells in a band called Big Masala. Uh, put together by <laughs> Hugh Nanky Bell. You know what? I, I, I tweeted this. I, I, no, I've put it on my Instagram. I've played there more times than Skepta, Crepton Conan, Louis Capaldi. <laughs> big, big Masala. Big Masala. I tried to get tickets for them. Couldn't. <laughs> sold out. I mean, I'm lying. I'm lying. Happy <laughs> sold out. You I see how happy sold out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought, I thought I six is what we need. We need that good news back. That good Sixty-three in front of the McDonald's food court. <laughs> <laughs> they just we they closed it down after. Fair. Outside yeah. the dome. Um, but yeah, it's things like that. We had those things to look forward to. Nowadays, like the biggest positive announcements we get is the newest iPhone or what Tesla have done or how much money Bezos or Zuckerberg are making. Yeah. Like we miss that opportunity to celebrate the little things. Yeah. And I, I do think that that has played a big part in it because now if the majority of what you're hearing is negative and you're being told that you can't trust the majority of what you're hearing and what you're seeing, mm -hmm. you lose that solidity. You lose that, that floor of the ground underneath you. And if you're falling, you will grab onto anything that seems uh, concrete and firm yeah. and solid. Yeah. And in that, part of that is those definitions. And what validates you. So if you are, you know, I think about in the States, if you are one of those forgotten people in what we call the flyover states, just the middle of America, and all you see on the news is the success quote unquote success of people who don't look like you and whatever the narrative is that's being, you know, that you're consuming, you're going to hold on to that news outlet or that perspective that most represents what you yeah. are experiencing. Mm -hmm. um, so I get it. I get, I mean, I that's, do understand. I feel like that is the, the reason that the likes of Brexit and Trump actually happened. Yeah. Because yeah, you've got definitely. millions and millions of people who are being left behind the industries that they've worked in, the, the makeup of people that they're seeing in the media, everything's moving away from who they are. So I understand, or who they think or they are, they think they are. Yeah. yeah, exactly, and what they associate with. So I understand it. I think it depends on who's around you though, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I was looking at, I don't remember the, if you guys saw the outrage on, on Twitter about the Black Girl Fest that the Mayor of London's office was supporting, and then, uh, Again, we're going to stop name name checking these right wing guys. But DS, the lady, mm -hmm. um, she she went. Well, of, I'm I'm glad that you're doing this, but wouldn't it be racist if you know someone said they wanted to run an initiative that was only for white working class boys who are the who struggle the most in school, the education system? And that did get me thinking because I was like, number one. No, it's not racist. Um, <laughs> they love flipping it, don't they? Like, if they if they are struggling and they need help in school, help them. Yeah, like the acknowledgement of one inequality does not um, <laughs> negate, does another, negate yes. the existence of another. Yeah, yeah, just well, just help the people. Like you can <laughs> help everyone. Just help everyone that's not doing well. Yeah, in whatever way they need. And. Yeah. Looking at it, I actually got really deep into it and decided not to do any work that day. Um, <laughs> but white working class boys, so they counted working classes on free school meals, are the least likely to go into go on to uni and higher education. Hmm. And 
that is a problem. Yeah. Because we know that the way that the landscape of work in this country especially is going, if you don't have that university degree, those top-level jobs are often out of reach for you. Like, we're seeing more and more internships coming through, which is great. But if you don't have that, they're still hiring majority graduates. Yeah. Right? But a lot of those uh, attitudes are coming from generations of people who never went to uni, who never saw education as for them, because they previously had those more manual labor um, jobs and, and things like the, the coal mines, plumbing, the utilities, the trades, base, yeah. trades. But with those starting to uh, dwindle, both because of the presence of a wider market and the lack of investment in public services uh, from this government for the last 10 years. Those feelings are gonna fester because grandma's gonna be like, you know what, I had this and it's gone down. Mum's gonna be like, I know my mum had this and it's gone down for me. Grandson's gonna be like, you know what, my grand's still alive, she told me how great it used to be. Yeah. My mum showed me how much she struggled, I still struggle, what's the point in me doing all of this? Mm -hmm. right? yeah. And the people who are around them are all thinking that way. I think we, and it's weird me saying this to the Yorkshireman, but I do think that the London bubble blinds us at times time. to what the realities are like outside of London. Yeah. It's part of what resulted in the original Brexit vote. It's part of what resulted in this last general election result. Because within our echo chamber, we believe, yeah, everyone sees how rubbish it is. Let's change it up. But we forgot that at the last general election, those regions voted for Labour. And so change for them is the Conservatives. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. London still stays mostly red, but the rest of the country went, no, nah, let's flip now, because clearly that vote for Jeremy Corbyn didn't do what we thought it was going yeah. to in the three years. I think you touched on there as well, something that is, in my opinion, based on a couple of things that I've read as well, one of the most important shifts in our society that we're going to see over the next however long is that degree versus non-degree. Mm -hmm. So with a university education being much more attainable to more people nowadays, we are getting to that situation. And I've seen it within myself where it is your opinion matters more because you have a degree and you're working in these particular jobs um, and your ceiling is much higher than someone that didn't. And we start to kid ourselves, I think. And I, like I say, I've been very guilty of this where I think people that are in certain parts of the world aren't educated enough because they didn't go to university, which we all know is bollocks. Like some of the most important, some of the most impressive people within my life didn't get a university education. Yeah. And society's moving that way. So again, like I said earlier, it's gonna be polarized. You've got the degree versus non-degree people. And that is not going anywhere. That's not going anywhere. I think it's, it's, it's gonna get worse. Yeah, I don't, I do disagree with you both there because you two feel like that in your world this is the point in your world it, your world is is not one percent so when you say it, this debate's happening it's it's really it is it is in it's not a it's not happening in all the other places outside where we are it's not the the, the vast majority of people don't have degrees or, exactly. they, or they just exactly so the debate's not happening because to them they are the majority. So no, but this, this is something that's silent. It's happening without it having to be debated because... But who's having the debate? I, I that, that's what I'm saying. I don't think it is a debate. I'm saying it's something within society which is happening and we're only starting to realise it now because we are the ones mm. who are going to be moving forward to be the leaders in the, the, next, the next few years, the next couple of decades. We're going to be the leaders and we're going to look at a situation which was created probably about 15 years ago mm. when university became so attainable for people. But that debate is happening as well. 
otherwise we wouldn't have seen such a violent rejection of the experts during the discussions about um, Brexit. Like th those those conversations were happening. People were like, no, we don't need you experts to come in and tell us stuff. And and it was a case of you you experts have come in because you think you've got all of this education, because you think you have this degree that makes you your opinion more important than ours. So let's show you that we don't the, need your expertise to, to show. Our, our lived experience is, is just as important as your I, I studied experience. I'd agree to an extent. However, that the whole experts line, if you remember, came from Michael Gove. It came from central government who used it as a, it was purely used as a tool to create this view that that's what the way we should think. And it's been perpetuated by the conservative friendly media. I feel like I'm not necessarily sure that people on the ground think the same way. If someone's an electrical engineer, he's an expert. If someone's a, a, a plumbing and heating engineer, he's an expert. It's just, it's just how you can weaponize that to further your agenda, which for Michael Gove was actually, I need to shut down these people because what I'm doing is absolute nonsense. So maybe, you know, it's, I, I feel like there is, I, I'll climb down from a bit from what I said, I feel like there is, there's definitely a, a friction and there is a head to head of, of ugh, I hate saying it, like it's, it's the sort of London liberal thing against uh, uh, people in rural areas that I feel like that's, that is where it is, and I think it is within our own age group, it particularly that there is going to be sort of friction as the baby boomers bugger uh, off, die, shift off. Yeah, <laughs> it's, they get into that Viking <laughs> die. <laughs> That's <laughs> the yeah. word we're looking for. It's like in Lord of the Rings when the elves just get into the boat, and it's like it's getting a bit peaky, guys. <laughs> <laughs> See you later. Um, but yeah, it's um, it, it's it's going to be. We're not quite out of the tunnel yet, you might say. Um, just to, to move on, are we, are we so so? Do we feel more hopeful or not? I feel more hopeful that people look like me can empower themselves more, um, have their voice heard by the people that want to hear it, and we don't. We're taking more ownership. We can flourish as much as we want to because we know that there's people like us out there that want to hear our voices. In terms of on a macro level, we're done for man. <laughs> um, yeah, I feel on a social level more hopeful. On the macro level, I don't know. The system is pretty entrenched. Uh, I mean, it looks like we're all in the same place. Yes, I'm more hopeful. I think we have. There's more we can achieve, um, but there is also a lot that can go wrong. The night is dark, it's just before the dawn. That's how I'm gonna <laughs> that one up. Okay, Listen, the world's ending, man, anyway. If Wuhan Hashtag take all, us, all men must die. So this is where we're at. That's, <laughs> the, that's the energy we landed with. Um, that wasn't and, and women, <laughs> include yeah. all of Scrolling. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, we, we, we've obviously got a couple of guests with us. I think it's, it'd be a good time to sort of lean into their experience of life in general um alana um you're from cali california southern california it's an important distinction so cal so cal yeah i probably had that on some of my holiday t-shirts you definitely, <laughs> you definitely, definitely did, did. yeah does, does that make you a valley girl is that not technically but the you... valley girl thing is from la but okay i'm trying to 
keep it really subtle right now, but you could probably just hear let the it vibe. out. Let you, the vibe like out. I'm really trying to keep it together. <laughs> you, were, you mentioned the cheerleading just in passing earlier on, you yeah. know, just so we knew. But um, yeah. just so you know who you're yeah. fucking with, basically. <laughs> yeah. I think as well, just just to uh, just, just to talk on that. <laughs> your story <laughs> no, no patriarchy out here come to this let me let yeah, me tell your you story tell me about me no, go, no, on, go on no don't please Lord continue mercy, this is why we don't don't do please do no one of the reasons that no, i wanted you talk on down here. talk down my african sister <laughs> when she's trying to talk about her lived experience mm. are you done <laughs> <laughs> let me know when you're done yeah no the reason i wanted you to come on here so you've already touched on it as well yeah. our upbringing and yours as well, I imagine, was very, very similar. Yeah. Even though we were all like six, seven thousand miles away. Yeah. So if you you talk about your own experience. Oh, thank you. Thanks for the permission <laughs> to talk about my experience. That is why we wanted you on here today. Sh- uh, sure. Yeah. I'm. To to be honest, though, all all jokes aside, it does sound like we had a pretty similar experience. So, my dad is black. My mom is white and Mexican, but my parents were separated. So um, I grew up with my mom, uh, who who basically just looks like a white lady, even though she is half Mexican. Um, Grew up with my mom in a city called Palm Desert, California. If you are familiar with Coachella Festival, that's where it is. So that's where I'm from. very oh my gosh oh my god <laughs> it's hurt very that. white and <laughs> <laughs> incredibly white i mean just golf resorts everywhere people driving golf carts like around on the street just this sort of resort suburb town um white picket fence White picket fences. I mean, it is in the desert, but yeah, everything's very sort of mid-century decor. All kind of cookie cutter looks the same. Just a suburb, like yeah. white, white suburbia. And so that's where I'm growing up, coming from this really multicultural mixed background, but growing up often as the only person of color in my class. And when I say class, I don't mean my English class, like my class of students for that year. Mm, damn. Um And my experience was weird because I felt so uplifted and celebrated by my family. And I don't, I'm sure you all, or maybe, you know, if you grew up in a predominantly white culture, maybe you have this experience too, but I didn't even recognize an otherness, air quotes, otherness until other people started to reflect it at me. So the first time I can remember that was when my mom would come again, she's just looks white, would come and pick me up from school and kids would ask me if I was adopted. And that's the first time I noticed that. And then, and I'm talking age six, seven, so Mm -hmm. pretty young. And shortly after that, when I started having crushes on boys who were all white, uh, I noticed that. I think think everyone else is like, yeah, that that was the thing we did. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I had I had these crushes on these boys, and I noticed that the girls that were the it girls or the pretty girls that they all had crushes on looked nothing like me. I mean, just skinny, no curves, white, different hair, probably had a lot more money than I did. So I just, it really, it's funny. I was just talking with my partner about this recently, but that key moment of feeling like I wasn't good enough, the people who I valued didn't see value in me is something that really ingrained itself on my psyche 
and even over the course of my life as I felt like I would address that um, and try to practice self-love and to really find value in myself, that sort of shadow side of feeling inadequate would rear its head in different ways just over the course of my life. So when I was in college, I had an eating disorder and then I traced it back to this root cause of feeling inadequate, got over that, then later had issues with spending money because I wanted to make myself feel better and then traced it back to that. So it's like, even though I am so proud of my blackness, being Mexican, being a woman, there's like that subconscious thing that's just stuck in the brain that I can't seem to, that I'm managing. I won't say I can't resolve it, but it's just a constant management. Mm. So yeah, that's, yeah. I know what you mean on that as well, because I still see little bits of that exact same experience from most likely when I was at high school rather than university, because university, everyone's doing their own same thing. Mm. But at high school as well, as well being the only black kid, once he'd buggered off. Um, it's one of those situations <laughs> where the music that I liked wasn't the right kind of music, the clothes that I wore weren't the right type of clothes, mm-hmm. etc. And getting to an age where you can really take ownership of that and be like, you know what, this is me, people can like it or lump it. That's like one of the most empowering things that I've, I've managed to actually attain in the last 10 years or so. Mm-hmm. Because when you are younger and you're in those situations, it's it's your world, isn't it? Because every day is exactly the same. And I find it's very much a shared experience because when I'd go home, things were quite Jamaican. And then it's like you leave, you live in two different lives, like you said, because yeah, exactly. you feel like you are valued at home for who you are. And then you go out of your home and it's now, I'm going to put on this cloak. It's a different cloak today. Yeah. But this is what's going to make me popular. This is what's going to make me in with the right crowd. And it just gets tiring it really gets tiring yeah. i think being somebody else for such an important type of such an important time in your life it really does weigh down on you but i mean that's that's one thing that i wanted to ask you i think you touched on it with the the crush on boys and everything mm. like from a from a female's perspective that must be really really tough because i mean that's that's one difference between black men and black women is black men we tend to be i know you are hypersexualized as well in society but for us, there was always this, oh, he's a black guy, I want to try that out. Mm. What, did, what did you deal with when you went to university and stuff? With- uh, not even as late as university. When I started to develop curves before everybody else, I mean, that's when I started to get attention from boys. Mm. But it was still, God, it, this was in middle school. I don't know what the equivalent is here. I guess it would be early secondary yeah, school. Yeah, but yeah. just everyone's just such a little shit. Yeah, and yeah. you'd have the guys who would you know talk about your ass or your boobs or like the way you were developing but then still make fun of you for being black or they'd make that comment about watermelon or fried chicken or whatever just kind of nonsense and doucheness was going on but the i think the reason why the impact of my crushes were so important to me was because that it comes down to love Mm -hmm. and again being valued and i remember having this thought when i was maybe even eight of thinking the because i am mostly attracted to white men and a very specific type of just (laughs) (laughs) british northern white man so that's what i ended up with but but when i went scored for the episode (laughs) 
But when I um, when I was younger, I remember thinking of that sort of visual of what I liked and thinking that person is never going to love me back. I'm going to mm-hmm. always be in love with this type of person. And they're never going to love me back or actually see me as valuable or they're going to see me as some sort of fetish or that yeah. thing of, oh, I always wanted to have sex with a black girl because yeah. that does happen too. When I got into college, yeah. people would say that. Um, not often, but they would say it. And it took a long time for me to realize why that bothered me, why that was a problem. Because at first it was, you know, that high of being, oh, oh in- interesting, I'm, I'm, I'm interesting, yeah. I'm exotic, I'm special. And, but yet it's still, it almost fuels an addictive sort of yeah. need for validation mm-hmm. and constantly chasing someone telling you that you're beautiful or attractive or whatever. And it's just, it, it fueled an unhealthy mentality for sure. It's something I'm still, honestly, still yeah. still dealing with. I think it'll never go away. I mean, it's, it's always in the back of my mind. Obviously, it was nowhere near to that extent. But it always baffles me that people <laughs> feel like that's an, an acceptable thing to say. Like, I've always wanted to sleep with a black girl. I've always wanted to speak with, sleep with a black guy. Because, I mean... Yeah. I won't go up to an overweight person, but like, I've always wanted to fuck a fat woman. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know. I'm weirdly shocked. At, I don't like. I knew this is just an example. I'm just like, Dominic. <laughs> what is this? There are no rules, are there? I think for certain people, it's just one of those where it's like, yeah, this is an acceptable thing to say, and I, I don't understand why people feel like that. That's not an issue. <laughs> that's something that's completely normal to say. But in, so, doesn't that come from the the fact that in all of the portrayals we've been depicted in media as this hypersexual animals thing. and this thing for for men it's about dark men like mm-hmm. uh light-skinned men are portrayed as like this beautiful the emotional the caring dark-skinned men are portrayed as more animalistic more rough and that's portrayed as more sexy mm-hmm. um for for black women for however many years like throughout in no matter what shade you were because you were more curvy naturally, because you were, um, yeah, because your bodies were so different from mm-hmm. the typical white woman that they saw around them, yeah. suddenly it is both, it's both exciting and dangerous. So just being black of any shade gave you that same level of uh, sexuality mm-hmm. as the darkest yeah. hue black man, that it's exciting, but also so dangerous. What would daddy, like the, the fun of not being able to, <laughs> to tell your friends about it. Like the fun of it being secretive, something that's slightly taboo, something that's, that you're not allowed to do. Like I saw it as being grouped in the same uh, yeah. way as uh, drinking before you, uh, uh, what's the legal age for drinking? I don't know, 16. Not what you were doing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, drinking before you're supposed to do or, or smoking or skipping school. Like yeah. all of those things were gro- bunched into the whole, we're teenagers, let's be rebellious. But at the same time, you recognize that because it wasn't uh, treated as acceptable, that's, that level of danger also had the other side of it to be, you know what? you know you can't do it because it's not acceptable. You know what? So, yeah. so if you're caught doing it, yeah. you're going to be you're going to be slandered. You can't find them attractive. It works on both ways as well because I remember looking back at uni, it took me a while to come to terms with this. But in my first couple of years... Uh, the Dom show. God. <laughs> in my first couple of years, I often found that the people that I was most attracted to at uni, it was like mad posh white girls. Because I was like, people like me, one... Mad working class, black, yeah. black, black, black. Shouldn't be sleeping with them. And that thought that you just said, what would daddy think? That always came into my mind that was like, yeah, 
your dad I, would fucking hate me. <laughs> 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 and that was a real drive. I, yeah, I mean, I, I, for me, it's a mixture of different things. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is like, yeah, I, I think it's a mixture of factors. I think it's a lot of it is is rebellion, and then the part of it is sort of it's exotic and it's something they've never had before, and it's it is. And I think it's part of that is oh, it's just something bestial. Like it's just yeah. it's a thing, not a person. Yes. So, like I say, when when uh, when I went to university, I had no concept of private school and state school until I I was in halls with the son of a private school teacher in Scotland. Went to the rugby trial. And there was like 120 people, and there's maybe like six of us from state school, and then there's like three or four of us were black, and then they're like, "Oh, well, you must be fast." Yeah. <laughs> but you're a winger, and I'm well, jokes on you because I'm not fast, <laughs> but, I, but I am a winger, so one out of two. And uh, yeah, that was my first sort of real experience of it. And then when we'd go on like rugby team nights out, you the, yeah. the friends of these like the girls that were after these rugby boys that it was all the same it's a very specific subset but Northumbria was a bit different because there was you have a lot of girls from Northern Ireland so it's not the class boundaries in like Scotland and Northern yeah. Ireland don't quite work the same as they work in the UK like they can go to private school there and it's not necessarily private school it's just yeah. it's just a, a close by school yeah. but I think yeah it's it's for me the 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 almost troublesome aspect is the looking beyond you as a person mm -hmm. and just seeing you as an as this object of things yeah. that they've they've dreamed of or they've seen on like a porn film or whatever we've touched and on it before haven't we yeah. it's one of those things where we don't really have the the benefit of being judged on our character first it's no yeah. agency yeah exactly it's it's often you're a black guy first then you're rich and and everything amazing that comes with rich same with all of us around this table and that is one thing that i think does really separate us from a lot of the rest of the people in the world. Yeah. And look, I understand because we're humans and sight is the first sense we tend to use. So even whether you're black, white, or anything in between, or all colors of the rainbow, you're going to objectify people and judge them based on what they look like. But I think it's just all of the, we're just put into a box Hashtag black guys in a box and women. <laughs> black people in a box this black week. Black people in a box. Black persons. Um, <laughs> that really threw me off. <laughs> um, what, what was that? <laughs> it's being it's the it's the being limited by what you look like yeah. that is the problem. Um, but when we talked about representation and how important it was to me, this is where that importance comes from. Because to see women who look like me or especially even women who are darker than me being called beautiful and celebrated, it, it helps to heal everything that I've yeah. gone through. And um, my partner even asked me because... I need words in the five romantic languages. My my language, my number one is words. So I need words of affirmation. Um, and he said, oh, do I need to compliment you more then? And, um, you know, would it be better if people of color gave you more compliments? Would that boost your validation? And I said, honestly, having all types of people compliment other women of color makes me feel more validated it doesn't even have to be directed at me yeah. it's just having a general 
respect and validation of all black women yeah, that, that heals yeah. the individuals too. Mm-hmm. For me, I, I, I don't think my, my recognition of being black started as early as yours did, um, but it definitely wasn't as late as uni. Mm. So my problem was, and I recently, recently like, wrote a piece for a friend's book uh, for this, just trying to understand, like you say, that idea of creating as many different personalities and characters as needed. So I recognize that from a very young age, I took on this responsibility of having to be this perfect role model. Mm-hmm. And I was desperate, desperate for, for likes. Like I just needed people to like me. And instead of me to try to shape and create this person that you know I liked, I was always going to create a brand new character for each group that I interacted with yeah. that they liked. Mm. And as long as they liked me, I thought I was happy. And in school, that's okay. In primary school, that was all right because most I went to a school that's just down the road from me as a state school. Most of my friends in school lived in the same estate uh, block of flats that I did. So we're all the same, really. Like, I didn't really see mm-hmm. the fact that I was black as a differentiating factor. I then went to private school for uh, secondary school, and that's the first time that I felt properly torn apart from all of my identities yeah. mm. um, because it's a private school but it's in the middle of Catford which southeast London is still a very black area um, so the people in my class were a mixture of uh, working class blacks like myself um, middle class and upper class black people middle class and upper class white people yeah. working class white people the full mix but what I then started to realize was every part of me then had a different impact on where I fit in. And when I take that and combined it with my home life, which is very Nigerian, very church focused, like that was that part. Um, I wasn't a fit guy. Like, what do I do like that? I was fat. <laughs> I was fat when I was, when I was 11. <laughs> That's how I was. Um, so a goose is good, man. <laughs> I enjoyed food, bro. And like getting, <laughs> getting in in secondary school, you realise you've either got to be naturally good looking or on the sports team. Um, intelligence wasn't that attractive back then. No one gave a shit about intelligence. No one cared, school, no. especially not in a private school where everyone's just smart. Yeah, and it's just like okay, just bring yeah, something new else? to the table. Yeah. Um, and so. All of those insecurities kind of made it that much harder to find my group because I didn't fit in with the white kids because I was black and they were talking about their multiple holidays. Uh, Every half term, every summer holiday, they'd be going somewhere. What did you do? Oh, I sat at home and did uh, Saturday school or summer school. Mm. Um, I didn't fit in with the black kids because I wasn't that sporty. Um, I didn't get into grime and rap. Uh, because at home we only listen to gospel. Like I could, I could sing, I could sing you every track of Kirk Franklin's album. <laughs> oh, and you could sing it as well, man. <laughs> but, Sang. But I couldn't, I couldn't tell you what Gets were doing, what Bashi was doing, what the the, the rap was were doing. So I didn't fit in with them. Mm. 
the girls obviously were looking for one of those groups, like it mixed, but if, mostly if you were in the sports teams. So I kept just trying to f create all of these different identities and, and just rotate through them, yeah. whichever group I happened to find myself with. And I thought that was me being adaptable, me being cool. Social chameleon. I did the same thing. Yeah. yeah. But it wasn't. It was me just constantly trying to find that validation. And that followed me through to yeah. sick form where once the poppy fat dropped, I switched schools. I stopped focusing on education because I lost the fat. Girls were paying me attention. And at that point, I think that's probably the peak of my toxicity. I was the worst version of me possible. If there was a girl interested in me, I had developed my personality because I hadn't <laughs> been cute. I was funny and now I had looks to go with it. I didn't care about anyone's feelings. If a girl showed interest, I would take advantage of that when I could, move on to the next person, move on to the next wow. person, constantly desiring to see, like I'd, I'd had five years of nothing, so I suddenly wanted all of it. Everyone. Yeah. I didn't care who got in my way, I wanted all of that attention. And the problem was when I got to uni, for me then, um, recognizing that actually, once again, I'm in a place where I was still trying to balance, do I actually like this girl or am I just again trying to search that validation and mm. happy to think that she likes me? Yeah. Um, and in second year, when I properly got involved with the ACS and found the other black people, realizing again that there was another version I didn't fit in with. Yeah. And I think that's when, that's probably when my, my attraction scale kind of tipped fully. Yeah. And I, I realized that I'd been missing out on all the beautiful black queens. Shout out to all the beautiful black queens. Um, <laughs> Louder. <laughs> shout out to all the beautiful black queens. <laughs> um, like, Sounds like you've, you've been through all of them where you were talking. <laughs> <laughs> Goodness no, me. I didn't mean like that. <laughs> black, the black people, what, 6% of the percent of, of the population in this country. So it's, I mean, I'm trying to find a way to help you out here. It's, that's just naturally how it's going to be. Otherwise, you're going to end up like, you know, that, that when someone black starts at work and everyone's like, oh, you two will get on. <laughs> yeah, why? Why will we get on? And so, then you do get on and yeah, you're like, damn it. <laughs> right. Um... Time has defeated us, so we'll go into the final question. Song of the year, album of the year, slash <laughs> plus nine years. So yeah. <laughs> One plus nine. Yeah. Um, I think it's going to be a fairly common choice, but album's got to be Kendrick's Pimper Butterfly. Now I can live in the stadium, pack it the fastest. Gambling Benjamin benefits, sending in traffic, spinning women in cartwheels, linen fabric or fashion. Uh, I'm not going to do it on it, just listen to it. It's a masterpiece. One of those things where lots of different artists who you love, who you admire, got to work on the same project. And just like, lyrically, sonically, this, this is the peak. This is unbelievable. I've got two songs of the decade. I couldn't choose. It was between Salons, Don't Touch My Hair, and Put the Tea. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. If you know, you know. Nice. Album of the year, or decade, year plus nine, I definitely second to Pimp a Butterfly. That just puts to words things that even to this day I can't put into words um, of how I felt during the time that it came out. And I also just think it was an instant classic that should definitely go down in the history books. My 
song of the decade was uh, Big Sean. I don't fuck with you. <laughs> I don't fuck with you. <laughs> because whether I was feeling good, whether I was feeling bad, that was my song of the decade. And to this day, man, do I do that bitch? I fuck with you. <laughs> You little, you little dumbass bitch, I ain't fucking with you. I got a million trillion things I'd rather fucking do. I feel like if we really studied the lyrical content, like, <laughs> like back when we were kings and queens of Egypt, we knew that we weren't fucking with those people. Um, so I'm not like a music head like you guys. I just love sounds. So what I, I kind of flipped my my approach to this, and I think one of the albums of the decade in terms of encapsulating the shift for me um, was uh, Burner Boy's African yeah. Giant uh, because you know, this 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 decade has probably seen the biggest shift towards recognizing Afrobeats and um, the various forms of that as a valid music style and recognizing the amount of talent that is still on the continent um, and I think it also gives a shout out to the music that comes out from the Caribbean as well so we no longer need to rely on American and English music taste celebrate that no one wants to hear Soka no one wants to hear Soka and I don't know why it comes on in the dance and everyone just leaves the dance floor do I have a song of the decade I'm going to be soft the the song that I think I've listened to uh, for a long long time is actually a gospel song uh, it's called Forever uh, by William Murphy. Um, but the the it's just a love song that means a lot to me um, for personal reasons because it's the song that makes me think of my fiance the most. Yep. Points for the points. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I'm I've taken it the other way for song of the decade. Um, in light of what we've been talking about. I think Pharrell Williams' Happy came in 2014 and we thought, oh, these are good times. We're just coming to the end of Obama. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> things like, you know, things are on the up. There's been a black man in the White House. It's all good. And then that was the tipping point. And then <laughs> there was the year when all the cool people started dying. And we're like, oh, this is a bit weird. Every week. And then Prince, is, yeah, then Prince is gone. And then you're like, oh, my elbows hurting and then and then there's elections and elections and elections everything just went to shit but for a, for a brief moment Pharrell Williams just encapsulated what we meant and that's what I want to think about going forward you know to get us through these just quite dark times Um, album of the decade, yeah. I mean, me and Dom spend too much time together. It's going to be T-Pad for me. Um, Honourable mention, Frank Ocean oh, as well. Yeah. I'm not going to split them up. Okay. I'm not going to split them up. Because one of them is dead. Yeah, well, you think that, don't you? <laughs> I do, actually. I prefer Blonde as a work, but I, I could, I can I can buy some saying challenges better. Uh, Got to say thanks to our hosts, Michael <laughs> and the guys at 
outset studio. Yep. Yep. It's, Excellent uh, job. Yeah, it's lovely actually. It's a really nice place. Very clean. Box is getting bigger by the week, isn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. If if a if a bigger studio with more money wants to host and put some gas <laughs> behind it. We'll think yeah, about we'll it. Cut this, we'll cut this bit. Michael, yeah. <laughs> Michael's kind of big still, so I'm just going to just wrap this up. Um, thank you to our guests, Alan and Rich. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you very much. We'll catch you next time. Cheers. Peace. Peace.